Welcome to Behind the Curtain, LA Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. How many of you have been here since the pre-performance talk? Wow, <laughs> you're, you're as wacky as I am. Okay, well, thank you for your endurance. Did you enjoy the show? Yeah. He'd like it too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, th this um, this idea we got uh, two years ago. Uh, we had two two post-performance talks, and they seemed to be going very well. Uh, we had uh, Stephen Fry here because when we did Zalome, because he was he made that famous movie of uh, of, Z of uh, Wild. Uh, he was Oscar Wilde, and then um, we got him to come back last year because we did. He wrote a book about myths. And we thought that went well with Orpheus, Orpheus and Eurydice. So we're so enamored of the whole idea now. We want to keep going. So you keep, give us your input afterwards if you like these shows. Um, we've got a really, really great guest. Um, uh, come on up, Dr. High. Come up and hit, sit. I'll, I'll read you this. The doctor is a professor, professor of German studies at California State University, Long Beach, correct? Yeah. Got that right. Okay, T uh, Professor High's teaching and research focus on the age of Schiller, as well as literary, philosophical, and theoretical texts from the 18th to the 20th century. His seminars, Friedrich Schiller, the German novella from Boccaccio to Stephen King. I didn't know Bo uh, Boccaccio was German, but that's interesting, you told me. Uh, Heinrich von Kleist and Drama of the Late Enlightenment teach inter interdisciplinary approaches to the intersections of literature, philosophy, critical theory, and politics in German, European, and US culture. And so today is an intersection. It's one of those, this is one of these wonderful operas where there is a real intersection uh, between, two, between two, two geniuses, Verdi and Schiller. So uh, Professor High has received numerous awards for teaching, service, and scholarship and has taught as a visiting professor at the University of New Mexico German Summer School since 2001. Uh, Dr. High, welcome from all of us. Thank you very much. Now, a few weeks ago, I heard him speak uh, about Schiller and Don Carlo, and he likened, uh, I, I, he likened it all to Star Wars, and he brought us all to a fascinating, he made a proposition at the beginning so, and some, some of us were a little bit skeptical, and I said, well, what, wait a minute, Star Wars and Schiller, how can that be? But I think in the course of, the, um, course of our talk today, uh, we, we, I, we, we, we don't have all the visuals, but I think that also the, um, Dr. High is going to be able to explain exactly what he meant by that and what he means by that. Um, I'd like to start, though, by asking, how, how, what do you think of... The, I wouldn't say the rendition that Verdi chose to make of Don Carlo. Tell us about the similarities and the differences mm -hmm. between Verdi's Don Carlo and Schiller's Don Carlo, because Schiller's of Don Carlo, of course, was the source of Verdi. Well, I was happy to hear earlier today you said that uh, Don Carlo was one of your favorite operas. It's, it's yeah. my favorite opera. It is your favorite, one favorite. Yeah. I, 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 I always say that, though. Yeah, all right. <laughs> I have too many favorites. I, I, I don't. But, but yeah. <laughs> I don't sell operas for a living. I criticize literature, so I, I can be pretty frank about it. If I don't like it, I don't like it, and I don't teach it. Uh, I, it's amazing what Verdi did with that. The uh, original prose Don Carlos was uh, about 
200 modern book pages long in five acts. That would take about 200 minutes to do a dramatic reading of. If you set it to music, 12 hours maybe, um, the way the pace of this opera goes. And he manages to get the important scenes. Uh, if somebody said, what are the scenes that are absolutely invaluable to it? It's the first meeting of Poza and Carlos. Uh, it's then the first meeting of Carlos and the Queen. It's the great freedom speech that Poza gives to Philip II, um, followed by the Eboli disaster in the fourth act, um, the shooting of Poza, which is the dramatic high point of the play, and the arrest of Carlos and Elizabeth at the end. And he packs them all into an opera, uh, removing maybe about 15 of the speaking roles in the process. What would you, um, I, I'm just trying to think of some of the, the major differences that have, uh, for instance, I'm always surprised when I go back and read Schiller uh, that the Grand Inquisitor scene as such is not as imposing and central as it is in Verdi. And of course, I, I, I mentioned to you that Verdi, Verdi was anti-clerical and probably he just loved the opportunity to, um, to dig into the, the negative image of the Grand Inquisitor. But tell, tell us about the difference, because the Grand Inquisitor only appears once very briefly, and it's almost toward the end of the opera. Yeah, the, 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 the last two pages. Um, and he is scary. It's not as scary as Verdi, but it's scary uh, when he shows up. And his function is slightly different. It's very clear from the get-go that uh, King Philip is uh, limited in his power when it comes to the Inquisition. And uh, it's very clear in the drama that Philip gives the order to have Poza shot because his heart is broken. He thinks he's made one friend, and those are some of the best lines in the play. Poza says to him, uh, is there no way you can learn to treat a human individual humanely? And the king answers wisely, uh, I'll show you how to treat a human being when I finally meet one. Uh, because he thinks that people are not worthy of being treated like human beings. And he concludes at the end of the discussion, let history judge me how, by how I treated a human being when I met one, by which he means Poza. You are the first autonomous, rational, moral agent I've ever met, and I'm not going to have you killed for what you just said. Uh, it's a really heavy scene. And as soon as Poza is shot dead, uh, the Inquisitor makes his appearance and says to Philip, who told you to kill Poza? And Philip says, I'm the king of Spain. Uh, I made the decision myself. And the Inquisitor says, you, you don't. We've been following Poza for years, and you just ruined our plan. Uh, and it's very clear where the power lies. Uh, the king is a puppet. And, his, and the Inquisitor is angry because they wanted to use Poza as a, uh, of course they wanted to execute him, but they wanted to use him as an example. So they, he belonged to the, the Inquisition yeah. from, the point, from his point of view. He was ours, is the line. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, how do you feel about, uh, uh, well, not that knowing that you, we don't see Elizabeth and Carlo to, uh, fall in love in this version without the Fontainebleau. Do you have an opinion or feeling? Do you miss it? Uh, would you have liked to have heard it? How different, uh, I mean, how much of that exists anyway in Schiller? Not much. Right. Um, 
The, uh, the scene with the portrait of Carlos in the uh, Queen's treasure chest is an important scene in the drama. Uh, Verdi does a nice job with it, but I don't know if you haven't read the play, if it's very easy to see what's going on there. Um, Philip says, you have a portrait of the prince in your jewelry box. And she points out to him at length in the drama, we were engaged for five years. And he sent it to me when we were teenagers and we had never met. And the king, in the, in the opera, the king reacts with shame when she points this out to him. But it's a very quick exchange. Um, he realizes that he thinks it's a gift from one lover to another. And in actuality, it was just a formality uh, from when they first met. What's your opinion about uh, Charles V? Is he a ghost? Is it Charles V? Is it a monk dressed up as Charles V? Or do you have an opinion? Oh, I would say, objectively speaking, it's a ghost. Uh, and uh, if you ask the people at the L.A. Opera, he's got a, like a skull monster face. Uh, no, but he's a, yeah, I didn't want to tell you before. I told you we don't know who he is. But of course, it's obvious this production <laughs> makes the choice, and yeah. that is the choice is he's a ghost. He's a ghost. He's a ghost. But I think he's a ghost. In the, in the play, there's the scary scene where Carlos needs to get through the castle to meet the queen before he leaves for the Netherlands and Belgium. And it's already been made very clear there is an army waiting for him in northern Europe, and he's going to go there and lead them against his father. But to get through the castle, they come up with a very complicated scheme. He dresses up like his grandfather and walks through a subterranean hall in the castle. And when the castle guards see the ghost, in which they believe, they run away. And he's able to move through the castle freely dressed as a ghost. How much, how much I, I see the shadow of Hamlet in, in all of this. Yeah. Can you yeah. comment on that? Um, I think Hamlet is all over the place. Uh, you can't tell the two dramas apart sometimes. And it's uh, the same with the first one, The Robbers, which makes you even more suspicious of Carlos and Verdi. In The Robbers, uh, Il Masnadari. Il uh, Masnadari, yeah, I mentioned it. This, yeah, that's the first of the four Schiller operas that Verdi wrote. Uh, evidently, at some I'm point. Sorry, that's not no. right. It's the second. In, in the second act, um, the father of Carl and Franz Moore dies, evidently. And in the fifth act, he comes out of a castle in the woods and scares the hell out of everybody. And this is kind of a typical Schillerian surprise plot device where you're absolutely convinced that this guy's dead and then he shows up at the end. And there's no reason Charles V couldn't show up at the end of this one. As uh, a ghost. As a ghost, as an alive guy. I mean... The first time I read The Robbers and, uh, and the father showed up, I went, wait, he's dead, right? We've already established this. But we were misinformed. He's alive. Yeah. <laughs> By the author. <laughs> I think the, pro the, problem, uh, the, the problem that this poses is, is he a ghost or is he not a ghost, is complicated by the fact that um, you heard the celestial voice. You don't see the celestial voice, but you hear the celestial voice at the end of the Alto da Fe. Verdi gave uh, instructions, um, because you know composers did all the stage directions too, and there, there are, one can read these today, they all most of them exist, these playbooks, that, the, that nobody on stage was to hear the celestial voice with the exception of the heretics, or the so-called heretics who were about to be burned at the stake. And um, so it's clear that if there's a celestial voice, and that is so, uh, this is a tacit 
acceptance of the supernatural in this opera. If it weren't for that celestial voice, one could make a strong argument against the ghost idea and mm -hmm. say, no, no, it's really Charles V. But uh, since Verdi included a celestial voice, I don't think there's any equivalent of that, is there? There wouldn't be in Schiller. No, there's no. just the fake ghost scene in yeah, Don Carlos. Yeah, exactly. Uh, five acts as opposed to four acts, and explaining that the, the scene where they met Fontainebleau is gone. Uh, do you uh, t tell us about the relationship or how you see it? Um, I, I said in my pre-performance talk that operas have never felt obliged to be faithful to source material. Um, I'm not sure Schiller did either, but you can tell me about that. Mm. And uh, you, I remember we used to play a game called Telephone when we were in, I don't know, first grade or so, second grade, where somebody would whisper a word in the, and each one would whisper it in the ear, and would, by the time it got around the whole circle, had no resemblance at all to the, um, to the original word. Of course, this is, a, this is an object lesson in uh, gossip and calumny. Uh, but there's something about the way that this has, a, this, that this st the story, I mean, by the time you get to Verdi's Don Carlo, you're removed from the, uh, from the real historical figures over several centuries. Can you tell us a little bit about Schiller's own attitude, if you know what it is, or can we just surmise what it is? And how did he, um, what was his source material, uh, with the exception of, I think I mentioned, Abbe Saint-Réal, who was, who was the first romanticized novel? Right. He um, got Abbe Saint-Réal, sent to him by his publisher, uh, to use that as uh, the basis and then use another uh, French version, Messier's Philip II of Spain. Uh, and one of them is more historical and one of them is more romanticized. The funny uh, thing about uh, this, this time, he finishes it in 1787, um, a year before he's hired as a professor of history at the University of Vienna. And the, the irony being he's not really interested in history the way historians are. Uh, the facts, the dates don't interest him, and he points it out again and again, that what he's looking for is philosophical truth or artistic truth. Uh, he writes to Goethe in a letter one time, I wish there were a book of tragic situations throughout the ages where you could look at it and mine it for the work of art, the poem or the drama that you were going to use and see what is that salient point in the middle of it that makes it important to think about after 300 or 500 or 1,000 years. Uh, and in the same vein, in the same period, he writes to a contributor to one of his journals, uh, I wish you had been less rigid with the historical facts and put more focus on the philosophical truth. And another line, a letter from the same period, 1788, Future historians are not going to be helped out a lot by what I've written. Um, to, he just doesn't think it's that important um, when something happened or who was there. And his rewrite of Mary Stewart is maybe 80% fictional. Um, he invents characters. You know, there was, there's always been a historical Marquis de Posa, but no historical Marquis de Posa played any role in this situation. Schiller just imported him into the situation. Uh, and he becomes so important that you wonder why the piece is called Don Carlos at all. And many people have asked it before. Well, on a day like t t today, when Placido Domingo is singing the Marquis of Posa, it almost feels the same way, of yeah. course. Uh, 
By the way, Verdi originally called Otello Iago. He started out with the title Iago, and he only changed it uh, subsequently, and you can see sort of the same mechanism there, that these, uh, Iago is, of course, the motor of everything that happens. Um, nobody else really does anything um, in Verdi's Otello. They all react to uh, the machinations and the, of, of, uh, of course, we, we've all noticed that um, the Marquis of Posa and his political ideas would be impossible in the court of Philip II. Yeah. And um, I, read, I read an article, I can't remember where it was now, but saying that Posa was not just a, an anachronism in Philip II's court, he's also an anachronism in Verdi's time in Italy. That, and I don't know this to be so, but that the ideas, the Enlightenment ideas, and um, uh, political liberalism of, Sch of Schiller expressed through Posa's mouth were actually passé by the 1860s in Italy. Can you help me with that? Because, of course, I, it's very clear that Verdi identifies with Posa's ideas. Yeah. I mean, that's a long story, right? Posa is supposed to be acting, um, if you look at, at Verdi, um, between the 1550s and the 1580s, uh, which is quite a time span for a 23-year-old man. Uh, it really gets to the heart of the fictionalization of the problem. Things happen in Schiller's play that, that happen 20 years apart. And the two main actors are both 23, which is one of the first important points. It's rare in a drama that you find out who the, how old the two main characters are. They're maybe characterized, but they, it's, Carlos is 23 and Posa is the same age, and it's stated in the text. And the point is kind of a brilliant piece of Schiller the marketer. People who are interested in history know that Don Carlos died when he was 23. And this was kind of a burning topic of discussion in the 18th century. What happened to Don Carlos? Uh, Spanish history was a big topic anyways, and, and Schiller wrote a book about it, The Fall of the Netherlands from Spanish Rule, um, 1788 to 1792, he wrote this. So he was, a he was an expert on the real historical details of the matter. But if everybody knows that Carlos was dead at age 23 and it's announced that he's 23 in the first act of the drama, then you know he's going to be dead by the end of the drama. <laughs> and it also tells the audience, and this is how he died. Yeah, and this is a, a device Chiller used all the time. He doesn't care if it's really how he died. It's a way to hook the audience into the problem. But Posa says that three times in the play that he is aware that he's not a 16th century person. And this is Schiller talking to the audience through the character. Uh, this guy who's supposed to be talking in 1581, the year of the Dutch Declaration of Independence, or 1588, the sinking of the Spanish Armada, has obviously read John Locke and Thomas Jefferson. So he must have a time machine in addition to his other skills. Uh, and he says, uh, I don't, I'm not a citizen of this century. I live a citizen of centuries yet to come. And in classes, we do a math problem like this. What is 1581 plus centuries? And the answer is 1781. And he's using a lot of Thomas Jefferson's rhetoric in the piece. To the second part of the question, uh, and of course, Schiller is, in, is 16 years old in college when the American Revolution begins. Uh, for German liberal college students, the American Revolution was the most fun thing imaginable. Uh, Schiller and his classmates got arrested for having forbidden documents in their uh, bunk rooms, and it was most likely the Declaration of Independence. Um, the second part of the story is complicated. Um, 
Vanny's lifespan uh, and the, the fact that he's jumping back and forth between Paris and Italy makes the influences complicated. Right? France has a second Fra French Revolution in 1830 that is informed by a lot of the same kind of 18th century rhetoric. And the other response to that would be, I think, um, the United States, the Netherlands, Germany, and the principalities of Italy have a lot in common that the major nation states in Europe don't. They're made up of between 13 and 275 small independent states. It's almost impossible to organize a revolution in 250 states simultaneously, which is why Germany historically lags behind. Uh, but this gives uh, people a great opportunity. The Netherlands, seven states in the Netherlands, unite, throw out Spain, get a constitution, and found a new state. The same thing happened to three of the German-speaking states in Switzerland in the 13th century against Austria. Very similar thing happened to the 13 North American colonies. This process of unification usually has a liberal goal of constitutionalism at the end of it. And I, I think from the rhetoric of, of Verdi, constitutionalism is the, the sound that's ringing in the background of the piece. Certainly, you know, he was, I think we've discussed this in the past, he was a great hero of the unification of Italy. And, that, and Italy was not unified for the first time. It took several stages, but 1860, 1861 is when it starts. Uh, this opera is written in 1867. Yeah. Uh, the next step was in 1870. The unification wasn't done yet, but one of the major parts of it was done that the foreign influences had been, uh, had been already... Uh, removed and the so-called risorgimento that's the that's the movement to uh for to rise up uh, you know rise up again uh, that movement was sort of finished by that time because uh, it, it had been fulfilled itself so verdi had did not have the same interest he had in the 1840s when he wrote one opera after the other where somehow or other you felt the risorgimento very clear now verdi became a senator uh he was not really a politician. He didn't like politics, and um, he actually did it because he was a great he was a great admirer of Cavour, who was the big who was the intellect of the. And he died uh, unfortunately rather early. He didn't see the fruits really of all everything he dreamt about. So Verdi was a senator, but he also got out of that as quickly as he could. He, he, you know, remember that he's still down deep. He's an artist, 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 and that's what he really um, he did serve his country, and he became a symbol. Of a giant symbol of uh, of the United Italy, uh, not because he particularly chose to, but because he was so. Uh, first of all, there was an there there was a total accident in that the acronym Verdi uh, became used as Viva Emanuele Re d'Italia, and so Viva Verde Verdi became a a, a a political chant. Well, that's the way to get to be famous, right there. Mm -hmm. And of course, he was al already becoming famous as a composer when he was a young man, so he became associated with that. And so he was really the corporate personality of 19th century Italy. I can't think of any other, any other character. Manzoni was, of course, the great literary figure, but I think Verdi spoke directly to the heart of the entire people. And, uh, and a character like Posa is really saying a lot of those things. Would you agree? Yeah, Posa is the greatest Republican literature character I think ever imagined. And uh, this is uh, a question I bring up in classes a lot. 
How many republics in the history of republics lasted more than 200 years? And it dawns on the students pretty quickly that they are sitting in the only one in the history of the world that lasted 200 years. The next question is, what does this tell us about republics? They don't last very long. Uh, and a, a related question is, most Western republics were born in a war of liberation or a revolution, which tells you something about how mean people are to each other, that you're constantly having to liberate or free yourself. And it doesn't, um, I don't find it in any way problematic that, that this, this 1770s thinking pops up again and again. I wish, if, if all you US Americans understood the history and the importance of the republic, and its mission in protecting the rights of the most vulnerable minority, we wouldn't be in the hideous mess that we're in right now in the Western world. <laughs> it's not just the United States, it's most European republics too. Uh, and I'm afraid it's an orthodoxy of ignorance that has brought this about. Um, so I mean, get out and vote if you know who to vote for. Um, <laughs> Do you have any, uh, I, I want to know your, your thoughts about the, some of the criticism that I've written, I've read about the character of Poza, who said, yeah, he's a great, is he a great hero? He's a great hero, he, he expresses all these wonderful ideas, but he also makes, makes a bit of a mess, which is a little clearer in the play than in the opera. But uh, is he meant to uh, win not just our sympathy, but our admiration by Schiller, I'm speaking of Schiller now, not Verdi, uh, or are we supposed to have a little distance from Paul's and say, well, yes, um, he had a lot of good ideas, but in his attempt to uh, legislate and bring about his good ideas, he did, he went, he had to stoop, perhaps you want to say, to intrigue and uh, trickery and, uh, in fact, lost his own life and probably endangered the life of Carlo and maybe even Elizabeth by so doing. Is that a, is that a valid criticism? Uh, or well, it's interesting. The question about the, the 1860s and the rhetoric of the 18th century kind of links up to it. The late 19th century turns Posa into a warning figure, like a Robespierre uh, or uh, Flowering Judas, that Catherine Ann Porter story. He's right at the gate of doing something incredibly dangerous. But if you're reading this play, or if you're Queen Elizabeth or Don Carlos or anyone around him, you've got to recognize instantly this guy is very dangerous. There's almost nobody in that play that is not dangerous. Uh, but I think what these 19th century interpretations miss in the project, if you were to point out to Poza, you've resorted to lying, trickery, stealing, chicanery, you've threatened to murder people, you probably got yourself killed, you probably got your best friend killed, and the Queen of Spain is probably gonna be locked up in a room for the rest of her life. I mean, practically, she would be very difficult to kill. Her father is the King of France. The whole idea of marrying her was to calm France down. Uh, uh, and I think Posa's response, as Schiller wrote him, would have been, this is not about us surviving this episode. This is about the fate of humankind. It's okay if we get killed. And if one of them had said it to him, he would have said, oh, I'm sorry, I misread you. I thought you cared about the fate of humankind. You only care about living. And I think that's a big part of the, the play. Uh, and Schiller's role model, Socrates, in that um, Jacques-Louis David painting from 1787, everybody's crying and Socrates has got his finger in his hand and he's shouting, stop crying. This is a great moment. This is what you should do when you live in a corrupt republic is fight back, even if it costs you your life. It's beautiful. Tell me, while you're on the subject of uh, 
all, you know, Carlos dying, is it clear in, uh, in Schiller, as it is somewhat unclear in Verdi, what actually happens at the end? Uh, does Carlos die? Does uh, Elizabeth die? Because we don't actually know no. what, what happens at the end of Verdi. We have a feeling it's not good, <laughs> it's clearly not. It's not a happy ending it's, in any respect. And, it, it's uh, not good. Uh, no. uh, but we know. But but it's not very specific. At least in Verdi, is it in, any more so in Schiller? No, it's no more clear. We know he's not going to live one way or the other. So he's dead at the end, and this is what happened to him. So the the final lines of the play are: Philip has arrested Carlos or trapped him, and says, "I've done my part." and turns to the Inquisitor and says, you do yours. That means kill him. Yeah. So he's gone. What's to become of the queen is not addressed at all. Um, well, she faints, of course. She faints, which right. Which is a very operatic ending, actually. Yeah. 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 And, and, and Carlos says, is she dead? Or, yeah, yeah, she did. Is she dead? But she's not. She's not, uh, no. Yeah. But she might be at some point. Um, of course, she, the, the historical queen died of natural causes, well, yes, and by the way, they died the same. They died the same time, basically the same year. Of yeah. Elizabeth dying a few months after Don Carlo. Now, Don Carlo, we know how he died. He was he was he had been imprisoned by King Philip, and uh, he didn't eat properly, and he was. But this started, I think, the myth that Philip had murdered his son, and then uh, Elizabeth dying in the same year may have contributed to it. So. Where, where Philip was unpopular, which was in the Netherlands, where up in the north, this was a good thing to stir up the people. This wicked Philip II has murdered his son and his wife, and who knows, maybe the idea of the romance between the two of them was sort of born um, in that way too. She died of natural causes, and I also should add that it was a relatively uh, loving marriage. I mean, they. Uh, Philip doted on her, and uh, she seemed to be fairly happy with Philip, which one wouldn't expect if you read these, read these other stories. They were both very, I mean, Carl, Carlo and Elizabeth were the same age, and they all died. So that, in fact, uh, Posa, Elizabeth, Carlo are all contemporaries, and they all more or less died the same year. Yeah. yeah. But, the, lot, the, but the, 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 the chronology of so much is wrong. I mean, as you may know, in the, um, in the in the monologue of the king, he says, "I will rest. I will only rest uh, in my tomb in the El Escorial." Well, El Escorial hadn't even been finished. I wasn't even finished at the time of this this opera. I mean, it yeah. took it took several decades to write. I mean, it took much longer than it should, and it bankrupted Spain and bankrupted. All that. I mean, that's a long story in and of itself. But those kind of things are simply out of, everything is out of order. Any, anybody who builds the world's most expensive mausoleum must be thinking of dying at some point. Well, there's a wonderful Spanish expression. Uh, this is an obra de el escorial, which means it's the work of an el escorial, which means it takes forever to get accomplished. And speaking of that, I think our time is up. Uh, we want to thank Dr. High for coming and sharing all of this with you. And come back again. Thank you very much. You've been listening to L.A. Opera's Behind the Curtain. Thanks, and see you at the opera. If you've enjoyed listening to L.A. Opera's Behind the Curtain, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. 
Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this with your friends on Twitter and Facebook, and we'll see you at the opera.